everyone, and thank you for joining us for Compass Point, the podcast from the VCU Wilder School's Office of Research and Outreach. Here, we discuss current policy and governmental issues, share promising practices for conducting research, explore research conducted by faculty members within the Wilder School and beyond, and provide tips for students and others interested in pursuing their own research. My name is Brittany Keegan, and I'm the Director of Research Promotion and Engagement for the Wilder School. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Anthony Stark, an assistant professor in the Wilder School's Public Administration Program, who's going to talk to us today about his civic literacy research. So, Dr. Stark, thank you so much for being here, and we're really excited to have you join us. To start, could you please talk to us a little bit more about just yourself and your research in civic literacy? So, what does this mean? How does it manifest, and why is it important? Awesome. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me. I'm excited to be here and joining you all. Um, So, as you mentioned, my name is Anthony Stark. I'm a native of Virginia. Um, I am also an alum of the Wilder School, so I graduated with my MPA um, from the Wilder School not that long ago and then moved out west to pursue uh, a doctoral education and then started my career as an assistant professor um, in Colorado. The research that I'm doing now that focuses on civic literacy is a new space for me, but if we, if I kind of take a hindsight as 2020 type of perspective, it all kind of comes together as this culminating point. Um, so to begin, civic literacy is defined by Henry Milner as the knowledge and ability of citizens to make sense of their political world. So it combines the constructs of political knowledge along with political participation. And civic literacy applies general literacy skills to the everyday task of being a citizen and active member in one's community. Um, Its underlying assumption is that informed individuals can better identify the effects policy options have upon their own interests and those of others in their community. Very cool. So what um, got you interested in studying that? So um, it's kind of a long journey. I'll take you all the way back to middle school. Uh, I am a proud product of public education. So I attended um, schools in Hanover County. Um, And in middle school, I attended Liberty Middle School. My middle school and my civics class in particular was very unique in the sense that we had a bill before Congress uh, when I was in middle school. So I got to learn about civics while actually doing a lot of advocacy work. Um, It's called the Liberty Bill Act. I don't believe it's uh, it remains within Congress at this point in time, but we, it was there for a number of years. And essentially what we were attempting to do is to get the abridged constitution placed on the back of the $1 bill so that everyone had access to their rights. Um, that is such a cool idea. It's an amazing I idea. That. I don't know why it never received the traction that it, it I think it deserves, but mm-hmm. for me, that was my first introduction, first formal introduction into civics. I mean, it was a civics course, right? Um, and in those years, I was able to travel to the Capitol and give presentations. We would have um, representatives from Congress and from uh, the Virginia legislature that would come to our school, and we'd recite the abridged Constitution from memory for them, um, and just really get to learn about these processes in a very active and engaged way. So that was my first experience in this kind of civic space. Um, Later on in life, I went on to become a helping professional. So I uh, received my undergraduate degrees from Old Dominion University uh, in clinical psychology and human services with a focus in, uh, in social welfare. And that training as a human services professional, you learn to be an interventionist. And I worked in the field for a few years before attending the Wilder School. And that training mixed with those experiences that I had in the workplace really 
gave me firsthand experience of what happens when people who are often oppressed um, come into contact with public institutions and how unresponsive those institutions could be at times. As a helping professional, we are trained to aid and assist individuals in developing their coping skills. And what I learned is that many of my clients didn't need help with their coping skills. Their coping skills were just fine with the within the context of the environment that they were in. It was really that the institutions did not know how to um, engage them where they were. And so those experiences coupled with that introduction that I had into in civics, um, I also worked for a nonprofit organization for several years um, that focused on several public institutions um, within the United States, one of them being government. So we got to take uh, the youth in those programs on field trips to Washington, D.C. and places like that to get them to learn about government and expose them in ways that they hadn't before. So first the Liberty Bill Act and then working as a helping professional, then working in that nonprofit space. And then lastly, um, when I was working my dissertation research, I decided to focus in on uh, social policies, domestic policies, welfare policy, and really the discourse and the decision-making process there. And um, that really had an undertone of socially vulnerable populations. And so a lot of that kind of came together um, more recently in the last few years when I realized that as public affairs researchers, we tend to make a lot of assumptions about the citizen, the constituent, the stakeholder, whatever you want to call them. And so there are some folks that do some research in the, the same vein as like um, Donald Moynihan and Pamela Hurd, the administrative burdens where they're looking at the cost of engaging with administrative institutions, the learning costs, the psychological costs, so forth and so on. But that wasn't really where I wanted to focus my attention. My attention was more so on the preparation that individuals have before they go out into the world and begin engaging with these institutions and realizing that not everyone was fortunate enough to have the same type of experience that I had in Mr. Wright's civics class all those years ago. And so that is what kind of led me to the space of wanting to learn more about civic literacy, which again has that emphasis on political knowledge, not just political participation. Absolutely, and I love that you've been involved with this you know, for so long, yeah. even as a middle schooler. Yeah. And I also think it's really cool that, so you're a Wilder School professor now, yes. and that you got a degree from the Wilder mm -hmm. School, and so I did as well, we actually had a class together. I think yes. it was Dr. Stutz's like, introduction to nonprofit management course. And we also had, I don't remember this, the fundraising class. Remember it changed rooms yes. like every, yeah. Right. Good times. That was a really fun yeah. program. Um, um, but would you be able to talk a little bit about how the work you did here as a Wilder School student maybe helped to guide some of the, um, your research interests and the research that you're currently conducting? Very much so. So uh, as you mentioned, uh, there's that emphasis in nonprofits. I must say that when I came to the Wilder School, I had no idea what public administration was. As I mentioned, mm -hmm. I worked in the nonprofit sector for a number of years. Um, I wanted to learn more about those organizations and how they operated, and I knew that I wasn't a good online student at the time. I just didn't engage that way. And so all of the nonprofit courses here at the Wilder School were housed within the MPA program. Um, so I came here with this interest and this intense focus on nonprofits. And what the MPA program did is it really broadened my understanding of how not just nonprofits, but many of the public organizations um, that I had come into contact with as a helping professional how they were situated within our society. And so that was really kind of the beginning of this trajectory. Um, I remember nearing the end of the program and still having all these questions. I think the program here does a great job of helping students prepare for practice and going into the field and understanding how these organizations operate. 
Um, but I had bigger questions about kind of how they operated within society. And so I remember going to uh, Dr. Good's office and sitting down with her and asking questions about what it means to you know pursue a doctor a doctoral degree and uh, the PhD process. And that's what really kind of led me on my way to uh, the University of Nebraska at Omaha, which really shifted my thinking. The focus that they have there on developing intellectual identity allowed me to ask a lot of questions that aren't seen as mainstream questions within public administration. And so I think that coupled with the preparation that I had at the Wilder School has really led me to be able to integrate my professional practice and the experiences that I've had throughout life, along with the academic training um, and public administration and bring all that together into this culminating civic literacy research. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about um, that research. Okay. So what types of studies are you conducting to gauge civic literacy? Um, like maybe what populations are you studying and how are you setting up the studies? Okay. Great question. So the broad kind of research goals that I have are to comprehend, measure, and assess civic literacy locally, regionally, and nationally with the hopes of identifying factors that lead to disparities in civic literacy for political for politically underrepresented groups. Um, so the I'm using a mixed methods research design, so I'm combining both qualitative and quantitative strands that include coding and thematic analysis of um, statewide civics curricula, um, statistical analyses of um, performance on assessments like the SOLs and things of that nature, um, also interviews and focus groups and surveys with organizations and participants and these kind of extracurricular programs. So there are certain nonprofits that also work in the civic literacy space that provide additional training for students that they may not get in their day-to-day um, -day classroom. The population that I'm most interested in is adolescents. So that's mm -hmm. the age group of 10 to 19. And for those that study psychology or have an understanding of the life cycle, uh, that age group is the age group where we often say it's viewed as the stage for laying the foundation for good health. And so a lot of people don't think about civic literacy within the terms of health, but if you mm -hmm. think more broadly about the social determinants of health, civic literacy fits very nicely into that space. Um, research tells us that social economic factors contribute to 40% of health outcomes. So things such as education, job status, family and social supports, income, community safety, all that contributes to um, 40% of the health outcomes that we see within our communities. And that 50% of health outcomes can be traced back to an individual zip code. Uh, a few years ago, I did a study with a professor of mine at the University of Nebraska Omaha, Dr. Robert Blair, uh, where we looked at social policy at the local levels. And what we found is that social policy change begins at the local level. And so we think about enfranchisement, right? The preparation that we provide for individuals before they are uh, of age to vote or able to vote. What does that preparation look like? Are there disparities in that preparation? And then also recognizing that alongside that preparation, so you have the, the state and local government, the school districts that are providing this education. At the same time, many of the changes that we see in terms of um, social life and social policies and things that affect us day to day are also occurring in those same districts and those same spaces. And so I'm really curious to see how we are um, engaging and introducing 
adolescents to the world around them to be able to make sense of that political world and to engage in it in a way that serves their interests. Absolutely. You know, I'm sure a lot of our students are also interested in this type of research. Um, so what opportunities might there be for Wilder School students or other students, you know, across the university and beyond to get involved um, in either your research or maybe their own research um, on this topic? I am always looking for collaborators. I am a firm believer in um, faculty-led research and engaging students. That's how I think, I believe that's how we are trained best as researchers is by doing. And so I'm at the stage now being new or returning to the Wilder School of really kind of setting up that portfolio. So um, seeking out funding opportunities to be able to support graduate and undergraduate students and participating um, in this research. So I'm interested in anyone who has um, an inkling of interest in this work, please feel free to reach out to me. And I'm sure that at some point we can find uh, an opportunity or a way for you to either engage with the research that I'm doing or even uh, to construct your own research projects in this space. That's really cool. So I'm excited to see what you and our students do over the next couple of years. You and I both. <laughs> so, you know, that's all of the questions that I had. Um, before we go, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us? I can't think of anything um, in particular, but I will say that Looking at the literature broadly as it relates to civic literacy, some of the things that we find is that there is a civic empowerment gap that exists. So we know that students in poor communities and students of color have fewer opportunities to develop the skills and dispositions necessary for full participation in democratic life. And then when we begin to apply that at the international level, we find that democratic societies that more equally distribute intellectual resources also more equally distribute material resources, and that high civic literacy is an indicator of a successful welfare state. So that's globally. And then bringing things closer to home domestically, um, as I mentioned earlier, 40% of those uh, health outcomes are traced back to socioeconomic factors. At the same time, um, research that was done about five years ago found that 60% of rural youth and 30% of urban and suburban Americans live in civic deserts, which are communities without opportunities for civic engagement. So they don't have the same opportunities like the Liberty Bill Act that I was fortunate enough to participate in. And then states with the highest rates of youth civic engagement tend to prioritize civics courses and AP U.S. government and their curricula. And so in 2018, nine states in the District of Columbia required one year of civics or government courses. 31 states required half a year. And then 10 states have no civics requirements whatsoever. So if you just think about that uh, nationally, you can see that there is this there are disparities that exist uh, by virtue of what's being offered to individuals um, as they begin their preparation for civic life. For sure. Yeah. And hopefully your research can help address that. I hope so. Well, thank you, Dr. Stark, so much for joining us. It was really nice having you and speaking with you. Um, thank you to our audience for listening, and we hope that you'll join us again for the next episode of Compass Point.